Chapter Twenty of A Knight of the White Cross by G. A. Henty. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Twenty, Beleaguered. One morning, towards the end of May, fourteen eighty, Sir John Boswell was standing with some other knights on Saint Stephen's Hill near the city, having hurried up as soon as a column of smoke from a bonfire lighted by the lookout there gave the news that the turkish fleet was at last in sight a similar warning had been given a month previously but the fleet had sailed past the island being bound for peneca which was the rendezvous where mohammed's great armament was to assemble there could be but little doubt that the long-expected storm was this time about to burst the fleet now seen approaching numbered a hundred and sixty large ships besides a great number of small craft conveying a force variously estimated at from seventy to a hundred thousand men tis a mighty fleet sir john said and the worst of it is that we know there are more to follow still i doubt not we shall send them back defeated our defences are all complete our recent peace with egypt has enabled us to fill up our magazines with provisions of all kinds the inhabitants of the island have had ample warning to move into town carrying with them everything of value so the turks will obtain but little plunder and will be able to gather no means of subsistence on the island as every animal has been driven within the walls and even the unripe corn has been reaped and brought in however long the siege lasts we need be in no fear of being reduced to sore straits for food look over there there is a small craft under sail and it comes not from the direction of peneca see one of the turkish galleys has separated from the rest and is making off in that direction it may be that the little craft contains one or two of our comrades who are late in coming to join us it may well be so sir john for they have been straggling in by twos and threes for the last month i will give the grand master's leave to put out in one of the galleys sir john said for by the way they are bearing the turks will put the little craft off before she can gain the port he hurried to diabasin who was standing a short distance apart from the others gazing at the turkish fleet a minute later he was running down the hill to the town accompanied by three or four other knights they made direct for the outer port where two galleys were lying in readiness leapt on board one of them which already contained its quota of knights and at once rode out of the port just as they did so the turkish galley fired a gun i fear we shall be too late sir john said the turk is gaining fast on the other craft whatever she may be there goes another gun row your hardest he shouted down to the slaves the turkish ship did not fire again the wind was light and they were going two feet through the water to every one sailed by the other craft the galley from rhodes was still half a mile away when the turk was close to the boat that was trying to escape sir john and the knights chafed as they saw they would be too late i can't make out why the boat did not use her oars the former said of course she could not have kept away from the galley 
but if she had rode it would have made some difference, and we might have been nearly up. I can only see one man on board of her, Sir John, one of the younger knights said, and two or three others murmured they were of the same opinion. The others must be lying down. She cannot have less than from fifteen to twenty men. The Turk is close alongside. They still hold on. There she has gone about and escaped the attempt to run her down. Now she is heading for us again. Brave fellows, brave fellows, Sir John exclaimed, while a cheer broke from those around him. But they have done for themselves. They must have seen us coming out, and if they had surrendered, might have hoped to have been retaken. Their chance of getting quarter was truly not great, for expecting, as the Turks do, to carry off both us and all the inhabitants of the island, a dozen fishermen would have seemed to them scarcely worth keeping. However, by holding on, they have thrown away any chance they may have had. The Turks are alongside. They are leaping down into the little craft. Ah, two more galleys have just left their fleet and are heading here. See, Sir John, one of the knights exclaimed. There is a single man standing in the bow of that craft. He is facing the moors alone. See how they crowd there. You can see the weapons flashing in the sun. They have to press past the mast to get at him, and as yet he seems to hold them all at bay. He has chosen his post well, Gerville. The number of his assailants prevents the archers on the Turkish craft using their bows. Fire those bow guns, he shouted to the knights forward. Take steady aim at the galley. It will distract their attention. Nobly done indeed, one of the other knights shouted. I have seen him strike down four of the Turks. Row, men, row. Tis useless, Sir John muttered as he clenched the hilt of his sword. Useless. A Roland could not long maintain so unequally fight. A groan broke from those around him as suddenly the dark mass of the assailants made a forward move and the single figure was lost to sight. It was but for an instant. A moment later the crowd separated, and a man was seen to spring overboard. They will riddle him with their spears when he comes up. We shall have nothing to do but to avenge him. To your stations, comrades, it is our turn now, and we have no time to lose, for the other two Turks will be up in twenty minutes, and I had orders not to fight if it could be avoided. But we must take this fellow. Five minutes later the galley ran alongside the Turks, to which those who had captured the boat had already hastily returned. The ships discharged their guns into each other, and then, as the galley ran alongside, the knights tried to leap on board of her. They were opposed by a dense mass of Turks, for in addition to her usual crew, the Muslim was crowded with troops. For three or four minutes the knights tried, but in vain, to get a footing on board. Then Sir John shouted to them to forbear, and gave orders to the rowers at once to push off. A cloud of arrows swept across the poop as they did so, but for the most part these fell harmless from the armor of the knights. For a time the cannon on both sides continued to fire, but as the Christians increased their distance it gradually ceased. They had gone but a hundred yards from the Turk when a head appeared over the stern railing of the poop and a figure swung itself onto the deck. The man was attired in Turkish garments, but his head was bare, and the exclamation, A Christian! broke from the knights. The man strode up to Sir John Boswell. 
you used to say you would make matters even with me some day sir john and you have more than kept your word sir john fell back a pace in astonishment and then with a shout by st george it is tresham threw his arms round gervase's neck while the knights thronged round with exclamations of satisfaction and it was you whom we saw keep the turks at bay for three good minutes single-handed sir john said holding gervase at arm's length to gaze into his face truly it seemed well nigh impossible that any one who was like to be on that craft could have performed so doughty a deed and how did you escape it was simple enough gervase replied as soon as i dived i turned and swam along under the boat and came up by the stern and then held on by the rudder sheltered from their sight i saw that the galley would be up in five minutes and had no fear of their wasting time to look for me directly you came alongside her i dived again and rose under your stern i did not think that you would be able to take her for all their craft are crowded with troops so i contented myself with holding on until you were out of reach of their arrows and then i climbed up i am delighted to see you again gervais i was feeling very sore at the moment and i know the others felt the same and being obliged to sheer off without making a capture but the grand master's orders were strict we noted your craft pursued by the turks and i asked leave to take out a galley to cut her off he said take one sir john but do not adventure an attack against the turk unless she is likely to fall an easy prize to you her capture would be of little benefit to us and would be dearly purchased at the cost of a knight's life therefore as soon as we engaged her and i found that she was full of troops and could not be captured without heavy loss and that two of her consorts might arrive before we accomplished it it was plainly my duty to abandon the attempt although you may guess it went sorely against the grain to give the order especially as i knew that a host would be looking on from st stephen's hill however your rescue more than makes up for our failure and thankful indeed am i that i made the suggestion that we should put out to save that little craft though i thought it contained but a few fishermen or some coasting sailors who had in ignorance that the turks were at hand tried to enter roads one of those looking on with me did indeed suggest that she might have on board a night or two coming to join us but i did not give the matter a second thought and how go things sir john and how are old friends ralph harcourt and i think all your comrades in the santa barbara except the three who fell by your side when you were captured are well and at present on the island for the last two years none have been allowed to depart as to other matters they go not so well as one could wish the commanderies have not responded to our call for aid as they should have done for this however they are not altogether to blame for we have been so often threatened with attack and have so frequently applied for aid in money or men that they must have begun to doubt whether the danger was really imminent in other respects we are well prepared we have obtained large stores of provisions from egypt and shall have no ground for uneasiness on that score the defences have been greatly strengthened and no one fears that we shall not be able to beat off an attack we have destroyed the principal buildings outside the walls though it would have been better could we have gone much further in this direction and now let us have your adventures and escape 
"'Tis a long story, Sir John, and I must pray you to let me defer it for a time. In the first place, I have two or three wounds that I shall be glad to have bandaged. Why did you not say so at once? Sir John exclaimed. In those dark clothes soaked with water as they are, I did not see the bloodstains. But I ought to have looked for them, for surely no one could have gone through that fight, altogether unprotected with armor, too, without being wounded. Come below, and we will attend to them. Also, order me some wine and food, Sir John. I have touched nothing save water for twenty-four hours, and before that fasted somewhat strictly. By the time Gervase's wounds, which were not severe, had been bandaged, and he had eaten a hasty meal, the galley was alongside the mole, between the two harbors. He was provided with some clothes, and went with Sir John straight to the English Haberge, where the knight insisted that he should at once lie down. I will make your report to Diabasin and will tell him it is by my orders that you are resting. Your wounds are not very deep, but you must have lost a good deal of blood, and were you to exert yourself now and be pestered with questions, it would probably bring on an attack of fever. There is nothing to do at present, for it must be some days before they can land and bring up their guns. Gervais obeyed the orders not unwillingly, for he felt that he was really weak, and was greatly worn out by want of sleep. Sir John Kendall, at Boswell's request, issued orders that he was on no account whatever to be disturbed, and that no one was to enter his room unless he sounded the bell placed by the bedside. Gervais, indeed, falling off to sleep a few minutes after he had lain down, did not awake until the following morning, having no idea that he had slept more than two or three hours. He sounded the bell in order to inquire whether Ralph had returned to the Aberge. He was surprised to find his friend had just risen, and that he himself had been asleep some eighteen hours. A few minutes later, Ralph hurried into the room. Thank God that you are back again, Gervais, he said as he grasped the hand of his friend. I did not return until late in the evening having been at work with a large body of slaves at the fortifications, and you may guess what joy I felt at the news. You are changed a good deal. I don't suppose you will think so at the end of a day or two, Ralph. I lost a good deal of blood yesterday, and have been on short rations, but I shall very soon pick up again. They will bring you some broth and wine directly, Gervais. Early as it is, the Grand Master has already sent down to inquire as to your health. I will reply in person as soon as I have had a meal and dressed. And I suppose we must all wait to hear what you have been doing until you return, Gervais. I suppose so, Ralph. Of course, it is a long story, but I must tell you at once that there is nothing very exciting in it and that it differed little from that of the others who have been prisoners among the moors, save that I was strangely fortunate, and suffered no hardships whatever. And now I want to ask you about clothes. Have my things been sold, or are they still in the store? No, the question was raised but a short time since. It was mooted, by the way, by that old enemy of yours, Robert Rivers, who returned here some three months ago with a batch of knights from the English commanderies. 
Sir John Boswell answered him roundly, I can tell you, and said that they should be kept, were it for another fifty years, for that he would wager his life that you would sooner or later make your escape. I am sorry that fellow has returned, Ralph. Has he got a commandery yet? No, I believe that Sir John Kendall sent home so bad a report of him that even the great influence of his family has not sufficed to obtain his appointment, and that he has been merely the assistant at one of the smaller manors. Sir John Boswell told me in confidence that he understood that Rivers did not at first volunteer to come out in response to the appeal of the Grand Master, but that the Grand Prior informed him that unless he took this opportunity of retrieving his character, he might give up all hope of never obtaining advancement. Ah, here is your breakfast. An hour later, Gervais presented himself at the palace, clothed in the suit of armor that had been given to him by Genoa, although he was engaged with several members of the council at the time. The Grand Master ordered him to be at once admitted, as soon as he heard that he was in attendance. "'Welcome back, Sir Gervais Tresham,' he said warmly as he entered. "'We all rejoice greatly at your return.' and I consider it a happy omen for the success of our defense, that so brave and distinguished a knight should at the last moment have arrived to take a share in it. The others present all shook Gervais cordially by the hand and congratulated him on his return. You must dine with me this evening, Diabason went on, and tell us the story of your captivity and escape. At present, as you may suppose, we have too many matters on hand to spare time for aught that is not pressing and important. You will need a few days' rest before you are fit for active service, and by that time we will settle as to what post will best suit you. Twice that day had Gervais to recount his adventures, the first time to Sir John Kendall and the knights of his auberge, the second to the Grand Master. Most of the leading members of the order were assembled at the palace, and among others he was introduced to the Viscount de Montieu, the elder brother of Diabason, one of the most famous leaders of the day. He had brought with him a considerable body of retainers, and although not a member of the order, had offered his services in defense of the town. The council had gratefully accepted the offer and had unanimously named him commander of the forces. Many other knights and soldiers had come from different parts of Europe, animated alike by the desire to aid in the defense of Christendom against the advance of the Muslims, and to gain credit and honor by taking part in a siege that was sure to be a desperate one. My brother has already spoken of you to me, Sir Gervais, the Viscount said when the young knight was presented to him although indeed there was no occasion for him to do so, since the name of the knight who two years ago saved the commerce of Italy from ruin, and with a single galley destroyed or captured a great fleet of over twenty Barbary pirates, and thus for a time put a stop to the depredations of the infidels, is known throughout Europe. By the way, I am the bearer of a message to you, 
I took ship at Genoa on my way hither, and stayed two or three days there while she was being got ready for sea. Knowing that I was bound hither, a certain very beautiful young lady of noble family, to whom I had the honor of being introduced, prayed me that if you should by any chance have escaped from captivity, and she said that she was convinced that you would, when you heard that Rhodes was threatened, assuredly endeavor to escape and to come hither to take a share in the defense. I was to tell you that she trusted you still bore her gage, and that she on her part had held fast to the promise she made you. I still have her gage, Viscount, for though I was for a long time deprived of it, I succeeded in regaining it when I made my escape, Gervais said quietly, and de Montiel at once turned the conversation to another topic. Gervais found that no attempt was to be made to take the offensive against the Turks, and that they were to be permitted to advance against the city without interference. Many of the more fiery spirits among the knights chafed at this prohibition. The records of the past showed that armies as large as that of Mahomet had suffered defeat at the hands of bodies of knights no stronger than that gathered for the defense of Rhodes. Diabason, however, knew that between the undisciplined hordes that gathered in countless numbers to oppose the crusaders and the troops of Mahomet, well trained in warfare, who had borne his standard victoriously in numerous battles, there was but little comparison. They were commanded, too, by Paleologus, a general of great capacity. Under such circumstances, although victory might be possible, the chances of defeat would be far greater, and while victory could be only won at a great sacrifice of life, defeat would mean annihilation to the garrison and the loss of the city upon whose fortifications such an enormous amount of money and labor had been expended. On the other hand, he felt perfectly confident that the city could be successfully defended, and that, at a cost of life, far less than would be attained by a victory in the open field, while the blow that would be inflicted upon the prestige and power of the enemy by being ignominiously compelled to retire to their ships after the failure of all their attacks would be as great as if their army had been defeated in the field. Therefore the Grand Master, with the full assent of his leaders, turned a deaf ear to the entreaties of the younger knights, that they might be allowed to make a sortie. He calmly waited behind the formidable defenses he had for the past ten years been occupied in perfecting, in anticipation of the assault of the Muslim host. Accordingly, after disembarking at their leisure, the Turkish army moved forward, and took their post upon St. Stephen's Hill. From this eminence they commanded a full view of the town, the hills sloping gently down to the foot of the walls. In latter times the first care of a general commanding the defense would have been to construct formidable works upon this commanding position. But the cannon of that period were so cumbrous and slowly worked, and so inaccurate in their aim, that the advantage of occupying a position that would prevent an enemy from firing down into a town was considered to be more than counterbalanced by the weakening of the garrison, by the abstraction of the force required to man the detached work, and by the risk of their being surrounded and cut off without the garrison of the town being able to aid them. That the defense of St. Stephen's Hill was considered unnecessary for the safety of roads is shown by the fact that no attempt had been made to fortify it when, 
Forty years later, the Muslims again besieged the city. There was no shadow of apprehension felt by the garrison of Rhodes, as the great array of their foes was seen moving on to the hill and preparing to pitch its camp. On the summit was the great tent of the Pasha. Round this were the marquees of the other commanders, while the encampments of the troops stretched far away along the upper slopes of the hill. Previous to the despatch of the expedition, the Sultan had made preparations for aiding his army by treachery. The agent he had sent to propose a temporary truce had, during his stay on the island, made himself thoroughly acquainted with the outline of the works. A very accurate plan of them had also been obtained from an inhabitant of Rhodes, who had abandoned Christianity and taken service with the Turks. In addition to this, he had arranged with a renegade German, known as Maitre Georges, a man of very great ability as an artilleryman and engineer, to desert the city, and there do all in his power to assist the besiegers, both by affording them information and by giving bad advice to the besieged. On the day after Paleologus, who was himself a renegade Greek, had established his camp, he sent in a herald to summon the city to surrender, at the same time making lavish promises that the lives and property of the native population should be respected, and that they should be allowed to continue to reside there, to enjoy the full exercise of their religion, and of all other rights they possessed. The Pasha had no real hope that the knights would obey the summons, but he thought that he might excite a spirit of disaffection among the townspeople that would, when the crisis came, greatly hamper the efforts of the defenders. The Rhodians, however, were well satisfied with the rule of the order. The knights, although belonging to the Catholic Church, had allowed the natives of the island, who were of the Greek faith, perfect freedom in the exercise of their religion, and their rule generally had been fair and just. The wealth and prosperity of the island had increased enormously since their establishment there, and the population had no inclination whatever to change their rule for that of the Turks. The summons to surrender being refused, the enemy made a reconnaissance towards the walls. Diabasin had no longer any reason for checking the ardor of the knights, and a strong body of horsemen, under the command of de Montieu, sallied out and drove the Turks back to their camp. Maitre Georges, who was acting as the military adviser of the Pasha, saw at once that the weakest point of the defense was Fort St. Nicholas, at the extremity of the mole along the neck of land dividing the outer from the inner port. At a short distance away, on the opposite side of the port, stood the church of St. Anthony, and in the gardens of the church a battery was at once erected. The garden was but three hundred yards from St. Nicholas, and the danger that would arise from the construction of the battery was at once perceived, and an incessant fire opened upon it from the guns on the wall round the Grand Master's palace. Numbers of the workmen were killed, but the erection of the battery was pushed on night and day, and ere long three of the immense cannon that had been brought from Constantinople where sixteen of them had been cast under the direction of Maitre Georges, were placed in position. These cannon were eighteen feet in length, and carried stone balls of some twenty-six inches in diameter. Before these were ready to open fire, Gervais had entirely regained his health and strength. The Grand Master, being unwilling to appoint him to a separate command over the heads of knights many years his senior, 
had attached him to his person in the capacity of what would now be called an aide-de-camp. I know, Gervais, that I can rely upon your coolness and discretion. I cannot be everywhere myself, and I want you to act as my eyes in places where I cannot be. I know that the knights, so far as bravery and devotion are concerned, will each and every one do his best, and will die at their posts before yielding a foot. But while fighting like paladins, they will think of naught else, and however hardly pressed, will omit to send to me for reinforcements. Nay, even did they think of it, they probably would not send, deeming that to do so would be derogatory, and might be taken as an act of cowardice. Now it is this service that I shall specially look for from you. When a post is attacked, I shall, when my presence is required elsewhere, send you to represent me. I do not, of course, wish you to interfere in any way in the conduct of the defense, in which you will take such share as you can, but you are specifically to observe how matters go, and if you see that the knights are pressed and in sore need of assistance to enable them to hold the post, you will at once bring the news to me, and I will hurry there with reinforcements. No post could have been more in accordance with the desire of Gervais, for the portion of the wall defended by the English Lang was far removed from the point selected by the Turks for their first attack, the seafront being defended half by the Lang of Italy and half by that of Castile. Fort St. Nicholas was under the command of the Cavalier Caretto, and as soon as the Turkish battery was completed, Gervais went down there with an order from the Grand Master that he was for the present to consider himself as forming part of the garrison. This was pleasant for both Caretto and himself, for the Italian knight had conceived a strong friendship for the young Englishman, and had rejoiced greatly at his return from captivity, but had been so much occupied with his duty of placing the castle in all respects in a state of defense, that he had had no opportunity for a private conversation with him since his return to Rhodes. Gervais, on his part, was no less pleased. Caretto had shown so much tact after his release from the Moors, and had so willingly aided him in any capacity allotted to him, without the slightest degree interposing his counsel unasked, that Gervais had come to like him greatly, even before their arrival at Genoa. Circumstances there had brought them closely together, and their friendship had been cemented during their voyage to Rhodes. Corrado had gone back to Italy, where he had a commandery a few days after Gervais had sailed on his last voyage, and had only returned to Rhodes three months before Gervais escaped from captivity. This is turning the tables, Corrado said with a laugh when Gervais presented the Grand Master's orders. I was under your command last time, and now it seems that you are to be under mine. I suppose you applied to come here in order to have a fresh opportunity of distinguishing yourself. I heard that you had been placed on D'Aubison's own staff. Yes, and am on it still, and it is by his orders and not by my own solicitation that I am here. I will tell you what my duties are. The Grand Master knows the commanders of posts have their hands so full that they will have no time for sending complete reports to him, and he considers, moreover, that they might in some cases, however pressed, hesitate to ask for aid until too late for reinforcements to be brought up. My duty will be to let the Grand Master know how matters are going, 
and to send to him at once if it seems to me that help is needed. I should, of course, always send for reinforcements at the request of a commander, but it is only in the event of his being too busy in the heat of the fray to think of aught but resisting an attack that I should exercise my own judgment in the matter. Caretto nodded. It is a good thought of the Abbasans, when one is in the thick of a fight in a breach, with the Muslims swarming around, it does not occur to one to draw out of the fray to send off messages. For myself I shall be glad indeed to have that matter off my mind, though it is not every one I should care to trust with such a responsibility. Some might send off for aid when it was not needed, others might delay so long that help might come too late but with one so cool-headed as yourself i should not fear any contingency and now as i am not busy at present let us have a comfortable talk as to what has happened since we last met i was at the banquet at the grand master's on the night when you related your adventures you had certainly much to tell but it seems to me for some reason or other you cut short certain details and i could not see why as there seemed no prospect of escape open to you you did not accept the offer of Suleiman Ali to ransom you. I saw no chance of escape at the moment, but I did not doubt that I could get away from the town whenever I chose, although it was not clear how I should proceed afterwards. It was for this opportunity I was waiting, and I felt sure that, with my knowledge of the language, it would come sooner or later. In the next place, my captors had fixed an exorbitant sum for my ransom, and I did not wish to impose upon the generosity of Suleiman. There was another reason, a private one. You don't mean to say that you had fallen in love with a Moorish damsel, Sir Gervais? Caretto laughed. For shame, cavalier, as if a Christian knight would care for a Muslim maiden, even were she as fair as the Auries of their creed. Christian knights have done so before now, Caretto laughed, greatly amused at the young knight's indignation, and doubtless will do so again. Well, I suppose I must not ask what the private matter was, though it must have been something grave indeed to lead you, a slave, to reject the offer of freedom. I know that when I was rowing in their galleys, no matter of private business that I can conceive would have stood in my way for a single moment, had a chance of freedom presented itself. It was a matter of honor, Gervais said gravely, and one of which I should speak to no one else, but as you were present at the time, there can, I think, be no harm in doing so. At the time that I was captured, I was stripped of everything that I had upon me, and, of course, with the rest, of the gage which the Lady Claudia had given me, and which hung round my neck where she had placed it. It was taken possession of by the captain of the pirates, who, seeing that it bore no Christian emblem, looked upon it as a sort of amulet i understood what he was saying but as i was desirous that my knowledge of turkish should not be suspected i said nothing i was very glad that he so regarded it for had he taken it to be an ordinary trinket he might have parted with it and i should never have been able to obtain a clue as to the person to whom he sold it as it was he put it round his neck with the remark that it might bring him better luck than had befallen me he told me jeeringly months afterwards that it had done so and that he would never part with it given me as it was i felt that my honour was concerned in its recovery and that should i ever meet lady claudia again i should feel disgraced indeed 
if when she asked whether I still bore her gage, I had to confess that it was lost. But lost from no fault of your own, Coretto put in. The losing was not indeed from any fault of my own, and had the pirate thrown it into the sea, I should have held myself free from disgrace. But as it was still in existence, and I knew its possessor, I was bound in honor to recover it. At the time Suleiman Ali's messenger arrived, the corsair was away, and there was no saying when his ship would return. Therefore I decided at once not to accept the offer of freedom. Had it not been for that, I owned that I should have done so, for I knew that I could repay Suleiman from the revenues of my commandery, which would have accumulated in my absence. But if I had had to wait ten years longer to regain the gauge, I felt that I was in honor bound to do so. It was, in fact, some six months before the corsair put into that port again. The moment he did so, I carried out the plans I had long before determined upon. I obtained a disguise from Bin Abin, and by a ruse succeeded in inducing the pirate to meet me outside the town, believing that I was an Arab chief who wished to dispose of some valuable slave girls he had brought in. I had with me one of my old galley slaves, who had been taken into Ben Iben's employment, and when the pirate came up with two of his crew, and furiously attacked me as soon as I threw off my disguise, it would have gone hard with me had he not stood by me and killed one of them who was about to attack me in the rear. I slew the other, and Hassan, and the gauge is in its place again. End of chapter 20 Read by Peter Strong in Cartagena, Colombia On January 30th 2019